0: Welcome to Pediagogy. I'm Tammy. And I'm Lydia. And we're at UC Davis Children's Hospital trained pediatricians in Sacramento. This podcast reviews common conditions in children to enhance our knowledge and the knowledge of other residents, medical students, and any other interested learners. With that, let's delve right into this episode. A
1: 16 year old female comes to your office for a well adolescent check. On exam, you note acanthosis, striae, and hirsutism. In addition, the weight and BMI are greater than the 95th percentile. There's a significant family history of cardiovascular disease and diabetes. Her diet is high in saturated fats, sodium, and sugar. Her mother asks you what they should do to help her with her weight and what to look out for, given the family history.
0: Let me guess, we're talking about obesity today.
1: Yep, and I think that it's important to talk about it now, given that the AAP recently released some new guidelines in January of 2023 on this very topic. Um, It's a pretty hefty clinical practice guideline, so we probably won't be able to touch on all of the points in this episode, but mostly I just wanted to focus on their discussion on monitoring and management of obesity. But first, let's give some background. Why does this matter, and why is the AAP releasing new guidelines on this?
0: Yeah, well, we've probably all heard about the childhood obesity epidemic at some point. It is now described as the most common chronic disease of childhood, affecting 14.4 million children in the U.S. There's a lot of factors that play into obesity in children, and it's strongly tied to social determinants of health and adverse childhood experiences, also known as ACEs. Patients who have health inequities and disparities like lower socioeconomic status and lower education also um, have a harder time with this.
1: Yeah, and the prevalence has almost quadrupled in recent years compared to the 1960s. And the COVID pandemic also didn't really help things either as those numbers nearly doubled pre versus post pandemic.
0: Yeah, I won't um, say how it affected me either. <laughs> um <laughs> There's also an increased risk of poor health outcomes with obesity, such as eating disorders and avoidance of healthcare, not to mention the comorbidities associated with obesity, which we'll talk about.
1: Yeah, so the guidelines spend a lot of time talking about ACEs or adverse childhood experiences, which I think is a really good topic that deserves its own episode. But for now, we'll just kind of focus on the obesity management. But before we do that, Tammy, do you wanna give us some definitions of obesity to help guide us?
0: Yeah. So in pediatrics, we generally use growth curves and percentiles to look at weight. So obesity is defined in terms of percentiles of weight or BMI. Overweight means the 85th to 94th percentile or weight for age. And obesity is the 95th percentile of weight or greater. You can further break down obesity into class one, class two and class three to stage the severity. Class one is up to 120% of the 95th percentile. Class two is 120 to 139% of the 95th percentile for weight. Or they add in another thing, a BMI of 35 to 39, whichever is actually lower based on the age and sex. Once you're in class two, it's a severe category. Class three is 140% of the 95th percentile or greater, or again, based on BMI of 40 or greater and that's whichever is lower based on your age or sex.
1: Great, Um, and I think it's important to note that the BMI is really just an approximation of body mass and fat content. In order to really truly assess body fat content, you need to use something called X-ray absorptiometry as the gold standard, but that's not really the most cost-effective tool. So BMI is just a nice simple estimate. So if we have a child with obesity, what kinds of things should we be assessing
0: for? Well, we want to look for comorbidities and complications that come with obesity, mainly things like dyslipidemia, fatty liver, and diabetes. Children are more likely than adults to have more severe disease for things like fatty liver and diabetes, which is why it's so important to screen early for these things. For children who are 10 years and older with obesity, we should be screening for lipids, which means using a lipid panel, diabetes, using a hemoglobin A1C, fasting glucose, or a glucose tolerance test, and looking for non alcoholic fatty liver disease using an ALT. For children who are overweight, remember 85th to 94th percentile weight for age, you just need to check lipids. The guidelines trying to pa- balance the risk of comorbidities in children who are overweight and found that dyslipidemia was still high enough to screen for this in this group, but not the others. If they have other risk factors for diabetes and fatty liver, for example, family history, if they have acanthosis nigricans on exam, like that darkening skin under their armpits or at the back of their neck, if they smoke, if they have sleep apnea, or if they have hypertension, then you should consider screening for these things.
1: For children 2 to 9 years of age with obesity, the guidelines say to consider checking lipids in this age group. However, their risk of diabetes and fatty liver is lower in this group, so no need to check those unless they have severe obesity, in which case you could consider checking an ALT. Let's refresh on the lipid panel.
0: Ideally, you want to be checking a fasting lipid, meaning 8 to 12 hours of not eating. You expect in metabolic syndromes to have high triglycerides and high LDL, but a low HDL, which is your good cholesterol. In younger children, it might be harder to obtain a fasting lipid panel because they always like to eat. (laughs) So you could start with a non-fasting lipid panel and look at the non-HDL as a surrogate. This is just the total lipids minus HDL. A non-HDL of 145 or greater or an HDL of less than 40 is abnormal, and you should confirm that then with a true fasting test to diagnose dyslipidemia.
1: When you look at the lipid panel, uh, for total cholesterol, the ideal is less than 170, while 200 or greater is considered high. An ideal LDL is less than 110, while 130 is considered high. And as Tammy mentioned, HDL less than 40 is abnormal and then greater than 45 is ideal. For non-HDL, when you're checking the non-fasting lipids, less than 120 is ideal, and then 145 is high.
0: For triglycerides, the cutoff is based on age. So age zero to nine years old, less than 75 is ideal, while 100 is high. For 10 to 19 years old, less than 90 is ideal, while 130 is considered high.
1: Cool. So that's lipids. What about diabetes screening? So at UC Davis, we often will use A1C as that is a pretty good proxy for longer term insulin resistance. Keep in mind, though, that the A1C is less sensitive for diagnosing diabetes in children compared to adults. Also, interestingly, if you have iron deficiency anemia, the levels can be slightly elevated falsely about 0.1 to 0.2%. For A1C, 5.7 to 6.4 is the pre-diabetes level. You can refer to our diabetes episodes for more information on this disease.
0: What are the other diabetes tests like fasting glucose and glucose tolerance tests?
1: Yeah, so glucose tolerance test is great because it can also identify patients with dyslipidemia, but it's pretty hard to do. First of all, it takes a really long time, and then you have to drink this glucose solution, which apparently doesn't taste so great even for the adults, um, much less with our children. So good luck with that one. Fasting glucose is better, but isn't as good at identifying patients with prediabetes.
0: Yeah. And if you do decide to go with those tests for fasting glucose, you want 100 to 125 to diagnose them with pre-diabetes. And then in contrast for the glucose tolerance test at two hours, 140 to 199. So higher will be counted as pre-diabetes. Any random glucose level of 200 or greater though is in the diabetic range. Okay.
1: So let's move on to fatty liver disease. ALT is a more specific test for this than AST, which is why they recommend using this test. And a higher ALT level correlates with more severe disease. However, a normal ALT doesn't necessarily preclude the presence of disease.
0: They also say to check for high blood pressure starting at three years of age in children who are overweight or obese. There is what's called diurnal variation with blood pressure, particularly with obesity. Where you can have low blood pressures actually at nighttime, which leads to poor perfusion and, and organ damage. And that also can contribute to complications related to high blood pressure.
1: Yeah, let's really quickly review the thresholds for hypertension. So remember that for children 13 years and older, the cutoffs are the same as adults uh, 120 to over 80 is normal, elevated is 121 to 129 over 80, and then hypertension is 130 and above. Stage one hypertension is 130 to 139 systolic or 80 to 89 diastolic. And then stage two is 140 or over 90 or greater.
0: Yeah, so that's the easy one to remember. For the kids under <laughs> yeah. 13, it's based on blood pressure percentiles by age and length so, or their height. So elevated blood pressure would be the 90 to 95th percentile. Stage one is 95th to 95th percentile plus 12, and stage two is greater than 95th percentile plus 12, which I guess sounds easy when when I say it like that. But then you have to look up everyone's percentiles based on their age and like, yeah. <laughs> so that's when it gets confusing. <laughs> Remember that you need three separate readings on different occasions to truly diagnose high blood pressure or hypertension. And we'll actually talk more about hypertension in a future episode. It seems like
1: the new guidelines recommend a little bit of an earlier screening than what most of us were doing previously. I remember being taught to start screening children with overweight and obesity for metabolic syndrome around 9 to 11 years of age. But in some ways, the new guidelines are also a little bit more judicious in terms of what to screen for and which groups to screen.
0: Yeah, exactly. I think there may be concerns with regards to over-screening children, but just based on personal experience, I don't think we do that good of a job for screening for metabolic disease in children in general anyway. So we talked a lot about screening and evaluation of patients with obesity. How do we treat them and when should we treat children with obesity?
1: First-line therapy is pretty much what you would expect, which is lifestyle modification, i.e. a diet and exercise. They spend a lot of time on the guidelines talking about this thing called IHBLT, or Intensive Health Behavior and Lifestyle Treatment, which actually I hadn't really heard of before, but essentially is this sort of intense, multimodal, family-based lifestyle modification. It seems like the most effective uh, mode of therapy for this is 26 or more hours over a 3 3- or 12 month period done face-to-face, family-based, and has multiple components, so including things like aerobic as well as non-aerobic exercise. And they recommend this for 2- to 18-year-olds with overweight and obesity. And the effectiveness is dose-dependent, but I think the biggest barrier for this, as you can imagine, is access. There's not a lot of places that offer this kind of therapy, and given how intense it is, it's hard to engage patients and families with this kind of therapy and to follow through with it
0: you also need to assess a patient's readiness to change which can be done through motivational interviewing which can be a whole episode on its own and maybe we'll get to that one day um one day. you also need to <laughs> one day you also need to make sure that they're ready to commit to lifestyle changes for patients who are ready but don't have this intensive um lifestyle ih thing that lydia was talking about um you can also consider modified versions of this to include self-curriculums on diet and exercise and collaborating with local dietitians and exercise therapists which might be more realistic i think yeah for sure yeah there isn't one particular behavior strategy that seems to be more significant more effective than others. So really collaborating with the family and the patient and working on what works best with them is the best thing to do. Things to consider would be portion control and limiting fast foods as well as sugary drinks. And then there's also certain diet regimens like the DASH diet for high blood pressure or hypertension and the child uh, one and two for dyslipidemia that have some pretty good evidence for them. The key is that whatever method you end up using for your patient, You want to make sure to try and stabilize the weight and eventually reduce it gradually. This is because the comorbidities track onto adulthood, particularly for cardiovascular disease. And so you really want to make lifestyle and lifelong changes.
1: Okay, but we all know realistically how difficult it is to achieve therapy through lifestyle modification alone. Tammy, you can just think about how hard it was for you to get me to exercise every once in a while during residency, even though I knew I should do it.
0: Yeah, that was a real struggle, (laughs) but we will not talk about that today. (laughs) Um, There is a subpopulation of children with obesity where additional therapies may be helpful. With regards to medication therapy, the recommendations aren't as strong, and they say to consider it for children 8 to 11 years old as an adjunct only. They don't really recommend any one clear medication, but meds that you can consider would be metformin, orlistat, and liraglutide. Remember, metformin is used for type 2 diabetes, but there is actually an off-label use for weight loss. And results are a little bit mixed, but seems to be more effective in severe obesity at higher doses. Orlistat is FDA-approved for weight loss 12, for 12-year-olds 12 and older, but it's pretty poorly tolerated because of its side effects, which include diarrhea and flatulence. And finally, for liraglutide, which is a GLP-1 agonist, it's FDA-approved B C for those who are, again, 12 years and older, and also has GI symptoms like nausea. So again, might not be the best tolerated.
1: There's also some off-label use of other meds, like topiramate, that they've tried but have had minimal benefit. I think my main takeaway from this part was that you could try some of these meds as an adjunct with some careful monitoring and guidance for the families, but none of them are like a silver bullet to treat obesity in children.
0: So on to the final treatment, which seems to be the most talked about and controversial part of these new guidelines, which is bariatric surgery, which, yeah, I never recommended that for a patient. But these guidelines say that you could consider referring for bariatric surgery in children aged 12 and older with class 2 obesity with clinically significant disease. What does that mean? Well, if they have comorbidities associated with obesity, then it's clinically significant. Like diabetes, idiopathic intracranial hypertension, or pseudotumor cerebri. Body, liver, skiffy. I do know that one. Slipped, capital, femoral, um, uh-huh, bird, reflux, uh, sleep apnea, high blood pressure, hypertension, and dyslipidemia. You can also refer for class three obesity with or without clinically significant disease.
1: So the controversy with these guidelines is whether or not it stigmatizes children with obesity and worsens body images and eating disorders by medicalizing obesity as a disease. And the discussion for or against this is sort of beyond the scope of our episode here, but it is interesting to read about on your own. Regardless, I do think it's a good starting point to think about in terms of how to manage pediatric patients with obesity.
0: Yeah, so to summarize, children 10 years and older with obesity, you should check a lipid panel, a hemoglobin A1C, and an ALT. If they're 10 years and older who are overweight, you can just check a lipid panel and then think about checking the other labs if they have risk factors for those. For children who are less than 10 uh, who have obesity, you also would just check a lipid panel, and you can think about checking an ALT if they have severe obesity in this age range. For treatment, the mainstay is really lifestyle modification, but there are medications that you can consider as well as bariatric surgery for a select few patients. That's all for this episode. You can find additional information in the podcast description and our social media resources.
1: Please rate and subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Twitter at Pod. That's
0: P-E-D-I-A-G-O-G-Y-P-O-D. Special thanks to Arlando Magana at OM Audio Productions for Music Composition and Dr. Su Ting Lee and Dr. Lena Vandalis for Mentorship.